Testament doesn't matter, or you're going to preach through the book of the Bible. You want to have an idea of the overview, the background of that book. And it requires you, or allows you anyway, to see the big picture, you know, behind that book. Last thing you want to do, if you're going to begin to preach through a book, is just dive in and begin looking at the text without, you know, letting your audience know something about that book, maybe why it was written, the purpose of it. And so those things are important to know as you begin to, to dive into the text of any biblical book, and then to review that as you go along. Because that's going to have a big part in your interpretation of that book. When you have that overview, you have that background, this becomes important information for you to have uh, that you can uh, allude to. And many passages you'll look at are going to tie into uh, that big picture in which you have uncovered. Also allows you to get into the world of the biblical writer. Uh, the books of the Bible were not written in a vacuum, but they were written in a particular time, a particular place. Uh, there were things that were going on, setting that was behind that author's writing, and you know he had things he wanted to convey to his readers. So we need to know something about that world. We don't want to take scripture and just automatically jump to, to our setting and to our world. But we have to bridge the gap between the setting of the biblical writer and then bringing it to our day. That helps us know better how to apply the book in the way it was originally written, what its, its original intent was. If we can understand that, then we know how to apply it to readership today. So the audience, the original audience and setting, uh, plays a big part in that as you're uncovered the world of that biblical writer. And so it helps us to let the modern reader know here's what was taking place back then. As best as we can understand it, maybe have to go to even uh, extra-biblical sources to get information about that history, the culture of that day, and whatever it requires to get that big picture. Uh, we got to try to understand it. So that's going to be true for the Gospel of Mark. It's going to be true for the book of Romans, the book of Joshua, you go in the Old Testament, any book that you uncover. Uh, you need to know something about that. And then always bear in mind uh, purpose. So the primacy of purpose is very important. When you're looking at a biblical book, to know that there's a reason why this biblical writer wrote. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired this biblical writer to write in the way in which he did. Sometimes that's left out. We're going to see in some of the uh, historical criticisms of the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is left out of the picture of uh, what's behind the book, why was it being written. And that's sad when that gets lost in the shuffle. Because if you decide of that, then uh, Scripture is no longer trustworthy. The Holy Spirit did not inspire. And so these things are important of why we need an overview of any book that we're about to tackle and begin to teach, maybe a Sunday school class or preach from the pulpit uh, to the people sitting in that audience, that congregation, so that they know this big picture and the background behind the book. And then to, as you do that, 
to remind them, you know, remember, this was this day. This is what was going on in that day. Because these things can be easy to forget as you go through a text, maybe for several weeks, maybe going through a book. And uh, so keep, keep rehearsing that so you don't lose sight of the big picture. Well, we know the Gospel of Mark is a gospel. It's in that particular genre of scripture. But why four gospels? Why do we need four of them? You know, why couldn't the Holy Spirit just inspire one big, great gospel that includes all the information that he wanted us to have? Why do we have four? Let me give you some thoughts on that. First of all, the life of Christ. The gospels are about Jesus. And we might say that's too important for just one book uh, to contain all that information. And so too important for that one book. And so we have several that give us about the life of Christ, oftentimes from different perspectives uh, from these biblical writers. As we study the Gospels, we understand the different emphases that each Gospel writer seems to present uh, in his Gospel. Uh, we'll just kind of quickly go through these. Matthew seems to have his focus on Jesus as the Messiah. It's a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. It seems as if Matthew is trying to relate to a Jewish audience uh, to convince them of the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, as he claimed to be. And then Mark, the gospel that we're going through this semester, we find Jesus as the hard-working servant of God. As you go through the book of Mark, read through that, just one event after another. Many miracles that Jesus performed or mentioned in the book of Mark. And so sometimes uh, Jesus is viewed as sort of the uh, action hero within the Gospel of Mark. Because he's very busy going about doing great things. And so a hard-working servant. We'll look at Mark 10 and 45 here in just a little bit. And then Luke uh, gives us uh, Jesus as the Savior of the world. Luke sort of has a universal feel to his gospel, uh, appealing to all kinds of groups, not just the Jews, but also the, uh, the Gentiles, oftentimes the poor, are highlighted. Women are highlighted. That's, you know, if we know something about Jewish culture, uh, women were not brought out to the limelight. They were often in, you know, behind the scenes, and uh, that was that day. You know something about that, maybe when you're studying Luke, to know that Luke was, was highlighting the impact of women in Jesus' ministry. Then we come to John, and we see Jesus primarily as the Son of God. We see John giving us more of a theological reflection about uh, the person of Jesus. So many, many teachings you'll find in the Gospel of John that pertain to uh, Jesus' own person, who he was, his deity primarily comes out in the Gospel of, Don, of John. So a big impact on that. Also, four Gospels, a third thing to, to mention here, gives us a fuller account of Christ's ministry. So we read in the four Gospels and we know there are differences within all the Gospels. One Gospel may have a particular story or teaching that none of the other Gospels 
path. So as we read through them, we get a very full picture of Christ's life. Now, do we get a complete picture of everything that Christ said or everything that Christ taught? Well, by John's own admission, we would say no to that, right? John said if we wrote everything, there could be known about Jesus, you know, the libraries of the world uh, could not hold the information. So as we think about the Gospels and really all of Scripture, we have what the Holy Spirit intended us to have and to know as we go through uh, the Bible and read through that. And then the last thing I would say about this, why more Gospels? I think because that's what God wanted. He inspired four accounts, and that's what we have. Four inspired accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes the gospel writers, the four gospel writers, the illustration that is often used is um, maybe thinking about an accident that takes place at an intersection. Maybe at each corner of that intersection you have people who witnessed uh, that, that particular accident. And as the police are gathering information about what happened, they're interviewing different folks who had different looks, different perspectives maybe of what took place. And so as we think about the four Gospels, we're getting four looks into the life of Christ. Not that we would refer to Christ's life and ministry as an accident, so don't use the illustration to that extent, but to think about the, the principle of this, the viewpoints that come from these different authors who were writing in various settings to people that they were trying to reach with the truth of Jesus Christ. So certainly God wanted this uh, to take place. Let's look at Mark's place in the Gospels or among the Gospels. As I was thinking about that preposition there, I felt like it should be among rather than in the Gospels. So you can make that change uh, in your notes. Uh, but one thing we know where Mark's place is among the Gospels is that Mark is one of these synoptic Gospels. And what do we, what's the word synoptic mean? Anybody? Parallel. Parallel. Seen together. Seeing together. That's the more literal uh, idea behind the word synoptic. It comes from the Greek that means to see together. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the synoptic uh, Gospels. Give us a similar view of the ministry of Jesus. Not the same, not completely the same. There's a lot of similarities, but then there are also differences within each of these three Gospels. But as the Gospels have been studied, especially moving into the 17th century, you know, this kind of uh, wording began to, to, to come out. And uh, so we see this synop synoptic title given to these first three Gospels. And so with that, as I've already mentioned, we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke having a very similar arrangement. Whereas John is unlike the other three. Many, many differences in the Gospel of John when you come to that. Many scholars believe that John wrote much later in the first century, maybe around 80, 85 A.D., Whereas the other three Gospels were written mid to late 50s, maybe even very early 60s, as we come to the maybe the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a 
Somewhat of a big time difference between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. And so John is an older man at this time, looking back and uh, giving us more theological reflections about the person of Jesus. So as we kind of compartmentalize the Gospels, this is what we see. The Synoptic tradition and then the Gospel of John that um, some percentages anywhere from 90 to uh, 92% uh, unique than the other Gospels. So what's in John is 90% original uh, than what we see in the other three. Alright. So that's Mark's place among the Gospels. What about Mark's place in history? Where does it stand in history? There's a great debate that's been going on for you know, about 300 years about who wrote first, which of the four Gospels uh, was written first, and that primarily takes us to Mark and Matthew in the primary arguments uh, with that. And so, uh, who wrote first? We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, it kind of gave you my understanding of that, but also a little bit of, of what we see. Um, uh, you know, a lot of this tradition. Uh, we'll get to that in another slide, so I'll save that thought. But we're, we're mainly looking at Matthean priority versus Markan priority. Uh, and this discussion is, is taking place, um, either Matthew was written first or Mark was written first. Now, Markan priority is rather new as it comes to history. And so when we think about enlightenment thinking, you know, along uh, the the lines of the 18th century when the days of the Enlightenment really began to take place. Um, various you know, sources were reviewed and, and studied and analyzed, and certainly the Gospels were part of that. And so what comes out of Enlightenment thinking is um, a lot of schools of historical criticism. You've probably maybe heard of some of these, source criticism, uh, which focuses on what were the sources that the gospel writers used for their information. So a lot of theories began to develop. Maybe you've heard of Q. Uh, Q is the uh, comes from Quell, uh, the German word for source, and that that letter just kind of stuck as far as information that is contained, particularly within the synoptic gospels, and these primarily primarily relate to sayings and teachings of Jesus that they think, many think, that there was a source that was used to compile some of what we see in the Gospels. And as you move further, you have other sources. Mark had his own source uh, besides Q. And then Matthew had his source. Luke had his source. So you come up with a four uh, hypothesis idea about the various sources and all that came in. Source criticism began to question where did they get the information that they wrote. Because there does seem to be some interdependency amongst the Gospels. Um, in, I think it's maybe Matthew and Luke. In both of those, they both include a parenthetical statement that is word for word. So that would lend us to think that there was some type of source that was common amongst them. But then along the way, form criticism began to develop. And that was, what were the form of the sources? Were they written? Were they oral? 
Were these things that were just passed down orally? Or was there a written tradition, you know, about those things? You know, some of these theories, you know, like a Q and these extra sources that each biblical writer had are just theories. Because none of these sources we have found. Um, there's no, no, no document that has come across. Oh, there's Q. We've been looking for you all this time. Uh, nothing like that has been unearthed. And so these are just theories and what men have uh, thought about along the time. And then redaction criticism came about. And in redaction criticism, it is the idea of, of how the gospel writers edited uh, their content. How they formed it, shaped it for their audience. And uh, this lends itself to, you know, these gospel writers made up some of this stuff uh, for the Christian community. And so we find big problems in some of these schools of historical criticism. But I want to go to Matthew and Priority uh, to think about the voices from the early church fathers. Those who were closest to the time. Uh, not only the, the ministry of Christ, but to the actual writing event of the, you know, the four Gospels. What are we hearing from the church fathers? So I want to give you a few of these, a handful of these. Papias is one of those. Uh, his dates range from the end of the first century into the second century, so he is certainly an early voice. Uh, he was the bishop of uh, Hierapolis in Asia, serving that capacity. And some of his thoughts, some of his writings are recorded by Eusebius, who come along later in the 4th century and write a history of the early church. And so from Eusebius, we hear Eusebius telling us that um, uh, Papias talked about John the Presbyter and uh, how he was maybe impacted by the Apostle John himself. And Eusebius says, Papias made the statement that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. And that it was later uh, transcribed into Greek. Now, this is a thought from Papias that comes very early. Uh, but like some of these other things we talked about, uh, there has been no Matthew Hebrew that has been unearthed. And so this you know, remains a theory based upon what Maybe some early church fathers have said that Papias wasn't the only one to mention that. Uh, there were others. Irenaeus is another one of those who mentioned a, a Hebrew uh, Matthew. And so if, if there was a Hebrew Matthew, that may put it early uh, as far as Matthew goes. Uh, so we have Papias, we have Irenaeus, who's in the early part of the second century. Again, he mentioned the Hebrew Matthew, but he also mentioned that the canonical order was right. So the order in which we see these Gospels presented, um, you know, in the canon, is, even in his day, the canon was still being formed, uh, but he believed the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John order was the correct chronological order. In fact, as we're going to look through this, that is the you know, predominant view of the early church fathers is that the canonical order is correct. Uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, mentioned that the Gospels with the genealogies were written first. So he actually puts Luke before Mark. So he would have Matthew, Luke, Mark 
and then John in his order. So in the mid to early 3rd century, uh, we see him. And these, this is also recorded by Eusebius, uh, what Clement of Alexandria had to say about the Gospels. And then we also have Tertullian, also mid uh, to early 3rd century, who also agreed with the canonical order, uh, that is, Matthew was written first. Uh, we have Origen. Um, that should be late, not last. Second to mid uh, third century, uh, there on the screen. Uh, but he also uh, held the canonical order, and you see, this tells us that about Origen. Uh, now we've been studying Origen today in our church history class, or not today. We, I think we mentioned uh, a few things about him. We looked at him a little more in detail. Uh, he didn't always have his theology right. Uh, but he did make mention of uh, the canonical order of the Gospels. And then we do have Eusebius as a witness, 3rd to 4th century. He told us a lot about some of the early church fathers and how they viewed Scripture. And then one of the greatest uh, early church father witnesses is Augustine. So 4th to 5th century, uh, he also held to the canonical order. We have all these voices. This is just a smattering of examples of early church fathers who agreed uh, that Matthew was the first gospel. And that held sway for uh, really over a thousand years in uh, the, the accounts of what the church fathers were saying through the medieval period, even past the Reformation time. As we get closer to the Enlightenment period, this is when things begin Change. So enlightenment thinking brought in a new age of thinking. These schools of historical criticism that we talked about um, came into view, and now all of a sudden we have different theories that are being presented concerning uh, maybe the order of the Gospels. Here's a, a statement that I think is important to understand when it comes to enlightenment thinking is that the overall result of this, of historical criticism, was to weaken the reliability of the gospel tradition. Most of what came out of Enlightenment thinking was overly criticizing the gospels, to where we get to the point beyond redaction criticism that some scholars were saying, well, we're not really sure who Jesus is or what he said or what he did. And so the study of the gospels in this way caused many to begin to critically look at it and say, well, maybe we don't have a good, reliable source in the four Gospels. But this is where the Holy Spirit's left out. You know, in, in a lot of this uh, liberal type thinking, Holy Spirit is hardly ever mentioned by them. And I think when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of where these guys got their information. Uh, we certainly know Luke from his prologue did a lot of research. He was not an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. And he admits, I've looked into these things. And so he researched. He may have interviewed uh, different individuals who were associated with Jesus. Uh, and the Holy Spirit using that, the gathering of his sources, to inspire him to write the account that he wanted Luke to write. Now certainly Matthew and uh, John were eyewitnesses. And so they had firsthand source of the things that they saw and heard Jesus say. 
Um, and then, then we have Mark, who was not an eyewitness, uh, but yet many believe that some of the early church fathers even stated that we looked at a while ago uh, that he wrote from the memoirs or the memory of Peter. And so the tradition of Mark at times being with Peter, and we have some pretty good evidence of that in the Scripture. In uh, First uh, Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, uh, we find Peter referencing Mark, even calls him my son Mark, greet uh, you. And so we have a mention there of a tradition of Mark and Peter together at times. And there's some other internal evidence that would lean to the fact um, that uh, we see uh, some, probably Peter, uh, the apostolic tradition in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, because there is a, uh, the, uh, when it comes to the disciples and the way they viewed Christ, they were often in Mark are presented as not really understanding everything. And that would certainly likely come from an apostle himself who would admit, and we didn't get a lot of what he was saying. We didn't understand a whole lot about what was going on. And so we see a lot of that uh, taking place in the book of Mark as well. And so the overall result of this was to overly uh, critically analyze the Gospels and come away with, we don't even know if we can trust the Gospel tradition. Well, that's a big problem, isn't it? Especially when it comes to inspiration of what we believe about the Bible. And so, Mark and priority came out of that tradition. I'm not saying that we need to hold it totally suspect due to that, but we need to think about when this began to really develop and hearing the voices from the early church fathers and what they had to tell us, I believe that Mark was probably not the first gospel writer. Uh, but Matthew probably does hold that place in the canonical history and the order in which we have it. And so Mark and priority, though, is the majority view of scholars today. This is where most biblical scholars uh, will lean in their understanding of the order uh, the uh, Gospel of Mark. Uh, and so I put myself in a minority view when it comes to that, as uh, Matthew uh, still holding that place. But, you know, a lot of talk about that. And you might say, well, well so what? <laughs> who cares? Uh, who wrote first? And all of that. Well, I think this statement kind of brings this part to a close. Content certainly is more important than chronology, than who wrote first. It is the idea of the content of the Holy Spirit has given to us in each of these four Gospels. And as we study them, and as we look at them sometimes even together, you know, we have the tradition of harmonies of the Gospel beginning with Tatian and uh, his harmony of the Gospels, one of the first to really try to put the Gospel tradition together. And there is value in that. There's value in looking at them all together to get that full review of the life of Christ, but also each individual gospel needs to be studied in its own merit as well. Because the Holy Spirit inspired four different accounts. And so we don't want to put the four together and say, aha, here it is, a new inspired harmony. We don't want to go that far. 
but there is value in looking at the various accounts that sometimes all the four Gospels mention, and sometimes there are different details that are mentioned throughout. So there's value in looking at that, getting a full picture of any particular event uh, that the Gospels give us. All right, but let's move on uh, to the authorship of Mark in our overview. Technically, the book is anonymous. Uh, nowhere does Mark come out and say, Hey, folks, it's me, Mark. And I'm writing to you this gospel. We don't have that clarity like we have with some other New Testament writings, particularly the epistles of Paul, where he clearly identifies himself at the beginning of his writings. But we don't have that with Mark. So again, we look back to many of those early church fathers that we already looked at for our information of how we know Mark or John Mark was the writer of this gospel because the earliest witnesses are telling us this. That we believe John Mark to be this writer of this gospel. So traditionally, while technically it's anonymous, traditionally we do believe that John Mark is the author, human author, of his particular gospel. What do we know about John Mark? Just throw a few things here. We know he's the son of Mary of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. We find the early church meeting in Mary's house. And so Mark was her son. He was also a cousin to Barnabas. We know that because of what Paul says in Colossians 4 and verse 10. Uh, calling um, John Mark the nephew uh, to Barnabas. And so we have that from Paul. He's also a companion to Paul on the first missionary journey. And you can read some of this in Acts 12 and 13. Although he didn't stay with Paul on the first missionary journey, uh, we know that the scripture says that John uh, left the company before that missionary journey was over. And that didn't set too well with Paul. Paul got upset about that, especially when we come to the second missionary journey and they're about to launch off and uh, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along again, and Mark puts his foot, or Paul puts his foot down and says, "No, he will not come with us." So there was some sort of rift there uh, between the two, but that comes back because we find John Mark also a comforter to Paul. Paul would mention him in some later writings, particularly in the Book of Colossians that we already mentioned, but also Second Timothy 4:11. That he says, bring Mark with you. I want to see Mark. So somewhere along the way, they mended their differences, whatever they were. And uh, Mark became valuable to Paul. But then, as we mentioned, he was a companion to Peter, possibly in Rome. 1 Peter 5, 13, if the reference to Babylon that Peter writes in 1 Peter, if we're right about that, of being sort of a code name for Rome, uh, and that would put Peter in Rome, Mark in Rome at uh, one point. And so even possibly writing this gospel from Rome uh, to Roman Christians uh, living in that region. And so this becomes a likely place of the origin of it. Uh, Papias and also Justin Martyr make mention of that, of the Roman uh, connection with the gospel of Mark. So a conservative date, if we're going to date the Gospel of Mark, 
think a conservative date is anywhere from mid to late 50s in the first century. It's about the middle of the first century is a good place to place uh, the tradition of the writing of the Gospel of Mark. What's left to occasion and purpose? Because this is awfully important when it comes to understanding the writing and uh, what is behind it, why I write this Gospel, and uh, we'll look at a few things here. Now, there is no stated purpose. Unlike the Gospel of John, you get to the end of John, John states a very clear purpose. And I write these things so that you may believe. And uh, John clearly tells us that's why he is writing. Mark doesn't give us any particular uh, statement like that. It's no real thesis statement to go with. You have to read the Gospel. You have to look at the contents that's within that Gospel to come away with some sort of background and occasion uh, for this writing. So one of the things that I think is associated with that is writing with the help of Peter. I've already made mention of that. Um, but there's some reasons uh, why we believe this could be accurate uh, tradition. One of those we've already mentioned is the um, uh, critical evaluation of the 12 disciples within the Gospel of Mark. And uh, just their misunderstanding at times. There seems to be more of that in Mark than in the other three Gospels. So if Peter's the interpreter here for Mark, as, as Papus would say, or Justin Martyr would say, uh, then Peter, as he relates these stories, maybe giving Mark, here's what we were really thinking. <laughs> we didn't quite understand some of the things that were happening. Uh, many of the details that we find in the Gospel of Mark, secondly, is a, a reason why there could be an apostle behind uh, this Gospel. You know, go into the very details of describing uh, the grass. You know, when Jesus fed uh, the 5,000 and uh, talk about how the grass was green. You know, Mark gives us those kind of colorful details that sounds like it's coming from an eyewitness. Somebody that was there, somebody that maybe that stood out in their mind, maybe in this case Peter's mind. Um, at times, you see in the gospel, uh, Peter remembering, just a statement that Peter remembered that Jesus said this. And so a couple instances in chapter 11 and verse 21, as well as chapter 14 and verse 72. Um, so maybe this could be Peter letting Mark know, you know when this happened, I remember you know, what Jesus uh, had to say about that. And, um, and so anyway, we find these kind of internal evidence that would lend toward a possible apostolic interpreter of this gospel, along with some of the early tradition of the fathers that tell us uh, that Mark likely wrote uh, with Peter, uh, kind of telling him things, giving him information. And um, you know, some people look at that and say, well, that just messes with inspiration. I don't think so, because we've already looked at Luke. We know Luke did research. We know Luke found sources, and I believe the Holy Spirit led him to those sources. Uh, so we could easily say that the Holy Spirit uh, allowed Peter and Mark to be together for a time to get the information from Mark's gospel and present that. And so just because these guys are, are researching and talk about that, you know, 
It doesn't mean that they just sat down and began to write their gospel as the Holy Spirit whispered in their ear exactly what to say. Sometimes there was some gathering of information that certainly the Holy Spirit was involved in to help bring that about. Well, ultimately we know that Mark's purpose for writing was to preserve a written document about the life uh, and ministry of Jesus Christ, primarily related to two areas. One of those related to his performance. So the performance of the Messiah. I don't mean he was going on the stage and acting, but I'm talking about his works and what he did. Mark highlights that just all throughout the Gospel of Mark. In fact, there's very little teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It is more action. It is more of what Jesus is doing, really a fast-paced look uh, at the Gospel. Mark has a, an affinity for the present tense. You know, he just, as if, you know, he's inviting the reader right there. All the scenes, all these things are taking place. And um, words that he uses throughout, such as immediately, at once, you know, these kinds of words let us know that and he is giving us a, a very fast snapshot of the life and ministry of Jesus, more so what he did. But like all the other four Gospels, or the other three, Mark included being four, he writes about his passion. And that all four Gospels slow down right here. I mean, you're going through the ministry, you know, three years of ministry, and boom, 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 and you get to that Passion Week, and now all of a sudden it slows down. I think there's some Holy Spirit emphasis certainly behind that. Because this ultimately is why Jesus came. He came to die. He came to suffer for mankind because of their sins. And so just about half the Gospel of Mark is related to his passion. You begin chapter 8, verse 31. You begin to hear Jesus even talk about his passion. To the disciples. Now we haven't gotten to Jerusalem yet at that point in Mark's gospel, but that's when the, the, the scene really begins to shift toward moving in that direction. So just about half of his gospel is related uh, to that very thing. A uh, key text that I think is, is very good in Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And just turn there and let's read that. I had uh, David lead us in a song a while ago that, um, that tied into this idea of, of ransom and Christ's redemption. But in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, we hear Jesus say, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a great verse in Mark that highlights both his action as a servant, but also his passion as a servant, and really what he came to do. All right, real quickly, a couple more slides here um, as we think through some of these last things. We've already mentioned this, but a vigorous, fast-paced writing with many colorful details. So we see a lot of these wordings immediately, next, at once, as we would translate of these words into English. Uh, Mark uses transitions throughout the writing, about six different 
transitional paragraphs that move, that keep moving the story forward. And so he has rhyme and reason as to what he is writing and what he is including. And so we can see that as a literary feature of Mark. Also, when you study the Gospels together, you find that Mark is the primary preserver of chronology. Uh, particularly when you come to his Passion Week, uh, you can use Mark and really mark off the days of what Christ is doing on any particular day. And so he, more than the others, uh, preserves a better uh, chronology of the events. There are also noted omissions, things that are not included in Mark's Gospel. No birth narratives. When Matthew and Luke begin with the, you know, the birth narratives of Jesus, a couple of chapters each on those things, Mark includes no information uh, about his birth. Also, very few teachings. We already mentioned that. Uh, that are included in Mark's Gospel. So these are just a couple of the noted things that are not there. So the basic outline of Mark, and you would want to certainly expand this if you're teaching and preaching through it, uh, with just a bird's eye shot at the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1 through chapter 8 and verse 30, uh, you primarily see this hard-working service, doing so many good things to do that. A lot of healings, a lot of miracles taking place. And then, as we already mentioned, the suffering servant section begins at 831, where he begins to predict his sufferings and moves in that direction. All right. Well, the ending of Mark. Let's end with the ending of Mark. We've got about five minutes here. And just want to share some brief things. This is uh, one of the more controversial aspects of the Gospel of Mark. Then you come to the very last chapter and the ending. Here you have a lot of textual variants at this point. A lot of different traditions amongst uh, the manuscripts uh, that we see in Mark. And so you have some manuscripts that end the Gospel of Mark at verse 8 in that last chapter. And then others extend it to verses 9 through 20 that we uh, have in our Bibles. And uh, more modern translations put notations about those things, noting the manuscript evidence and all that's taking place there. And, uh, and even within that longer ending, there are some variations uh, even with that, within that uh, amongst those manuscripts. What we can say, what we know, based upon the manuscript evidence we have, is that verses 9 through 20 are not found in some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Um, so Uncial A and B, Uncial A is a, a Sinaiticus manuscript that uh, is very prominent in the 4th century, along with Uncial B, that uh, have some really uh, great tradition and uh, evidence that goes in those particular manuscripts. Uh, they do not contain uh, this longer ending of Mark. Uh, but they primarily end there at verse 8. Um, even Jerome and Eusebius, two writers uh, we talked about earlier, at least Eusebius we did, uh, they claim that the best manuscripts that were available to them did not have those long endings. And so Jerome with the Latin Vulgate and those uh, things that he was doing with that, you know, he, he states claim uh, that he did not have that. Um, and so the fact that there are other possible endings lets us know that there is some uncertainty 
uh, about the tanks. Three main interpretations that come along with that. That uh, one interpretation is that Mark intended to end abruptly. He intended to end his gospel um, there at verse 8, where it sort of ends somewhat abruptly. Uh, maybe some believe to let us know that the story is still being told. Um, other, another main interpretation is that the ending of Mark was somehow damaged and scribes tried to reconstruct uh, the ending of Mark, possibly giving us variations of the ending of Mark. And others might say that Mark deliberately wrote in a different style, because when you do come to that longer ending, it's in a different Greek style than the rest of the book. So there are some noted differences there, and so some would say you just, you just switch style. Uh, right there at the end. So how do we handle this textual issue? What should we do with that as we're teaching through the book, preaching through the book? Um, I think one of the things we need to be grateful for the textual critics who have really poured over the manuscripts and piled uh, evidence of this tradition over this tradition and be very thankful for the work that they've done that we can uh, look into those things and enjoy that uh, kind of study. Don't be afraid to utilize the information that you might find in that longer section, even though the earliest manuscripts uh, do not contain it. Um, there is good information in there that would compare to the other gospel accounts and some of the things uh, that are written there. So don't be afraid to make mention of those things that are in there. But do proceed with caution. Interpret in light of the rest of Scripture. And so the things that you find in that ending of Mark, um, you know, you don't want to develop some sort of doctrinal stance that is not intended uh, in that place. Particularly some of the heretical doctrines that have come from that, like snake handling in churches. The ending of Mark talks about Jesus making a statement about you know picking up serpents and those kinds of things, you know that could be related more to what happened to Paul when uh, they had the shipwreck and there he, you know, getting a stick in the fire and a serpent bit him, but yet Paul did not die when everybody was expecting him uh, to die, or drinking poison and those kinds of things, you know, you know tempting fate, uh, baptism for salvation. There's a verse in there. That if you misinterpret it, it would make you lead, lean toward the thought that baptism is necessary for salvation. And uh, so I want to end with a, a short reading from the Gospel of Mark. And um, as we look into uh, where we were earlier, the key verse there in verse. Uh, In this whole section, um, you know, the disciples are kind of misunderstanding some things uh, that relate to what he's about to do, what's about to happen uh, to him. They're wanting, you know, various positions in the kingdom, you know, when, when Jesus establishes that. In verse 38 of, of Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink 
or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am about to be baptized. They said to him, we are able. Again, they don't really realize what Jesus is about to endure upon the cross. And Jesus then says to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They started this whole conversation about being on his right and on his left. And calling them then to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. And in our key text, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for 